Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 12th of May 2019. I suppose everyone's settling back into the the new system, the new chapter, as I call it, of the same system really, but it's a new chapter for sure, with an upgrading of its agenda, techniques, etc. for this new era we're in, because the whole century is divided up into chapters. Same with Agenda 21 for the 21st century. It's all in chapters in 2015, 2030, etc. And that's how it's done. That's how it's all done, of course. Just like the UN had 100-year plans and 50-year plans and 40-year plans, we've got all these different chapters or plans for the whole of the century. And they've been quite blatant about them. There's no secrecy really involved about where you have to be taken and led in this whole century and the changes that have to be made and you're going to accept whether you like it or not. It's rather blatant about that too because the whole world is to change. The whole world, remember, is to change, not just your nation, into a global system run with the same agendas, basically. Slight variations according to time for different countries because of their economics and because of their climate and all the rest of it. But it's the same agenda for the whole century, and they must get this accomplished. And of course, as I've mentioned many times before, uh, that everything that's happening now is a crisis, you see. And under the, the guise of crisis, whether it's terrorism or climate change or global warming or whatever they want to call it, it's all your fault. And you have to go along with it because, because crisis gives them necessity. And necessity is the excuse they use to take your rights away from you and force you along in the system. The system eventually will be cashless completely. It must be, you see, to control everybody. Because money is a control mechanism. If you can't get it, you're going to starve to death. And if it's all electronic, you won't be able to even use cash. You won't get cash. They won't be accepted. And if you've been punished in some way, and this is a whole system that was punishing you, for any wrongdoing or not going along with the agenda, then they'll withhold your funds until you buckle under and accept the whatever it is that you've reeled against. Quite easy to get you in line. If you can't feed yourself or can't uh, get accommodation to live under and keep you warm and out of the elements, then you'll suffer, obviously. Many ways to get you, in fact, and that is the way of the future. It's already here, actually. But you'll see it increasing very quickly as time goes on. Because, as you've noticed, across across the world, everyone's becoming aware of, with trepidation, of the system changing. And it's not pally anymore, you might say. And you're being warned and cautioned, etc. As a, as a prelude to what's to come. Because speech now is apparently dangerous. Depends what you're using it for and what you're trying to express. You'll always find there's a deep state. They call it the deep state today. But the deep state's always been here. Politics, to a very very true extent and good extent, politics is a front. I've said it before, it's, it's for throwing rotten tomatoes at, in a sense, and calling names at someone, and, and you vote them out to get the next ones in who've promised you something better, you see. 
And that's all they ever do is promise you because they know what the public are talking about, complaining about, and they come out and promise you whatever you want. They give, offer you utopia and you go along with it. It never happens, of course. And so you always try the next bunch, uh, back and forth, back and forth, like a ping pong game, basically. And that's what we're living in today. But behind it all, there's only one agenda. And you see it regardless of who appears to be in power. And look, look at all the different parties in the U.S. and Canada, for, as an example. Never mind the European Union, but in Britain, and, and Canada, and the States, and Mexico, and some other countries, by the way, in Latin America too. They're starting with their free trade deal, the negotiations, they called it. It took a long time to get that all signed and so on. And then they went on to NAFTA and worked at that for years. And presidents and prime ministers all got together every year, still do. And they, they signed deeper integration, because the whole point is in integration, without any public input into it. Because it's the same agenda, identical to the European Union. How it's going to benefit us all, bring jobs, 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 but it didn't tell us across the world. And of course, too, it would be everyone would benefit, etc. But it, this is a very old agenda. I won't go into it again and, and reiterate it again. It's very old. It's well documented. Karl Marx talked about it. The ones who ran the British Empire, all, all the top capitalists, uh, ranted on about it, how wonderful it would be. And uh, the, the CFR drafted it up here for the Americas and boasted about it. And their counterparts or their, their affiliation in Britain, their parent company might say, the, the private Royal Institute for International Affairs drafted it up for the European Union. So you, 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 you have private organizations running the world. And you don't have a say in it. And I won't go over it into it again and again and again, but if you ever forget that, if you ever forget the regardless of who is in power or appears to be in power, uh, why is it that the same agendas get further signed in, further signed in, deeper and deeper and deeper, for maybe 40 years sometimes, like the European Union, 50, actually 60 years for the European Union. The public didn't even know it was even going on at the end of World War II. They were not to be told until it was completed. And when they were to be told anything, it was like, oh, it's just about a free trade deal where we can negotiate things. That's what they were told. They weren't told there's going to be integrated parliaments into one system. But that's what it is. And the same for the Pacific Rim as well. That was to be a, 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 another grouping as well. So we're well on our way. And it tells you, as I say, if not one single party, left wing, right wing or middle or whatever they want to call themselves, have come out and told you this, then they're all in it together, obviously. Obviously. And they certainly are public servants, but they're not, they're not serving the public, they're serving somebody. And they all really know it, that there's a deep state. It's always been a deep state. And in, in Britain, even the writers, the, the, those who document the histories of Britain, including the organization that ran the empire and still does, there's still a, a sort of an empire there, though it's fixed itself in with the U.S. taking over. It's all one system. And it runs the economical system in the world and, and also gives to many of its top members the mineral rights, oil rights, and everything else to its top members across the planet as well. Because they, they don't do it for, believe you me, and there's, there's no such thing as altruism amongst them. They always put themselves across as being altruistic as though they're born really, like they're sent by God to help poor mankind, you know. 
That's how they put themselves across. They're all incredibly rich at the top. Incredibly. Many of them have titles. Most of them do at the top. And awards from all other countries for participating in the same global agenda. It's a completely different world for them once they get into it. They, they even have their own videos out on for their own potential members, how, what the, how to come into their organization and what the, how they'll benefit as the doors are opened for them. It's astonishing. Meanwhile, at the bottom level, we're, we're given nothing but fake history. And who won this battle or that battle? In more recent times, we're told why we've gone into countries to, to help them or democratize them and all that nonsense. You know? And they call them peacekeepers as they go in looking just like soldiers always looked. And, and we're run by jingoism and slogans all dreamed up by big marketing companies. And we are run that way, massively so. The newspapers use a massive marketing companies as well to, to try and get readership back in them to, in an electronic age. And they're being backed again by, they've been kept afloat lots of them, the top ones, by our tax money. Because those who are authorized traditionally to tell the public what they're supposed to be told. I won't say what they're supposed to really believe or know, but what's supposed to be told. Uh, they're licensed, and they already have this setup, this, this disciplined setup of management at the top going all the way down the, the, the tier groups until... Uh, so it's more disciplined than just uh, some general thing that starts up a well-cat company, you might say. So it's important to have these organizations, these institutions, as call themselves, still running the show and telling us what we want to know. But they're using big marketing companies to try and get readership in an electronic age. And you'll find that they've got psychologists again and, and neuroscientists and behaviorists working with them all the time uh, who come in and tell you how to hook the people into their sites. You'll notice some of the newspapers, actually lots of them have stacks of photographs and they advertise the, the, the money for any photographs of anything happening across the world if you send them into them right away. Because most of the things that happen in the world to individual people like ourselves really have very little effect on the rest of the world's direction. And so it, it, to an extent it's trivia. But if, if they've got fantastic photographs to divert you off into this, that or whatever and always emotive topics with them. To, as they're called grabbers And often very different from the actual article If you go on to read them But they use these techniques to get you in And to get you to read And if you read that one Next to you, with something at the end of it Another photograph or another big caption That grabs your attention to get you into Until they want you to spend as much time as possible On their particular site Because you get lots of money From advertisers You've got to participate and your own deception. I've said this many times before. Same with voting. You know this person's not going to bring in heaven and utopia for you. I mean, surely you know that, right? So you participate. The younger folk who are trained to be radical uh, armies, uh, almost in a Bolshevik fashion, <laughs> and they are today. I might touch on that later. I don't know. It's all organized that way from the top. But, but the rest of the public, they, they know. 
they know that you're not going to get up. You know your your the real cost of living is going up and up and up, and the value of your currency is dropping, dropping, dropping because it's designed that way. You're living on debt. The country lives on debt. Every note brought into existence, whereas digital or paper or plastic, is still is still borrowed. It's borrowed from some group or other, or private or whatever. But the fact is, it's debt money with built-in inflation in it. You see, so. You know, whoever you vote in, it's not going to make things better for you. You know the agenda is to get you off of eating meat, for instance, because it's, it's part of, that's what I'm saying. The whole agenda is one agenda. And all the things they're telling you that you must do to save the world and the planet were part of the eugenics agenda as, as early as the 1920s, even before that, in fact. How do you get the public to, to volunteer to reduce themselves? Well... You tell them it's because you're going to save them. You see, it's not beautiful. It's not fantastic. To save you all, we've got to make you do the very things that you wouldn't do voluntarily when we just wanted to, to, to bring down the population of all of you. Isn't it beautiful, eh? Uh, they always use the same techniques because they work. And during a wartime scenario, for instance, we don't mind as much. Oh, they're saving us from those nasty people over yonder, you see. And therefore, you go on starvation diet, if need be, for food. And you won't have the money to purchase much at all. So you kind of buy all the little goodies, even if you could possibly even get them. And you put up a hardship. You put up with everybody you know dying off, maybe even yourself, under the war situation. You get nothing out of it at the end of it, of course, except the debt. You handed the bill because we still borrow money to, to pay for all the armaments and things. But we, we put up with incredible hardship to be saved. So we use that scenario and, and bring it back under, we're saving you all from, from destroying the planet. You're the enemy, but we're saving you the enemy because you're destroying the planet. So you already stop, cut back your numbers, then you won't be able to uh, and we'll cut back your income. Uh, cut back your meat intake, and, and uh, because protein's awfully good for that's why folk are living so long. So many people actually, and they know this. And then cut back energy, so you won't have all that the piping water and so on. The stuff that helps to eliminate diseases and so on with, with running water and good sewage systems, etc. That's all to be cut back and priced out of existence. In comes the diseases, in comes all the problems, and you start dying off. But it's necessary to do that to save the planet, you see. A war scenario. My folk will never figure it out. <laughs> There's the same folk behind it. And uh, they're using all of our tax money. It's fantastic what you can convince the public to, to go along with when one system owns the entire system. One system owns uh, all your, can, can actually, uh, they own your government, they are your government, your government works for them, and they simply tax it all from you to pay for it all. Isn't that beautiful? It's a pretty good system, eh? you, you got to admit it, it's a pretty good system for those who are in charge of it. But the public are not to be told any truths, because that might spoil it. It's a great deception, but the world's pretty well always been run by great deceptions. And as I said before, we vote because we like to be deceived. We participate in deception, our own deception. Of course we do. Most folk go along with deception because they're afraid not to. That's part of it too. They're afraid. Most folk are afraid. And they take the easiest route. 
in any decision like that. And the easiest route is pointed out to take this route here and then go along with it. I remember reading uh, from, uh, I think it was one of Souls and Easton's books, and also um, Gozenko, Fall of a Titan. Excellent book to read, actually, very important one. And I think it was Gozenko, maybe, uh, who talked about in the Soviet early, he's a young child in the Soviet Union, and uh, they were in a country area and looked over a hill and used to watch the prisoners being marched to back to the prison camp after a day's labor in the Soviet Union. And they, they said that what struck them was that there was only two guards, one in the front, one in the rear, uh, with the prisoners, maybe 20 prisoners or more, maybe even 40 sometimes. And they'd, they'd be in their drudgery, drudging along, miserable as could be, half-starved, cold, and, and very weak, and occasionally getting a kick at first being slow or whatever, you know. And these two children used to watch them every, every other day when they were up playing around in the hill. And one day they saw them drudging back, and a couple of people in the, the group had decided to try and take these guards out. And so they knocked them down, disarmed them, and told to the rest of the prisoners, run, run, follow us and run. And none of them moved. None of them moved. And so the two guys eventually ran off in a certain direction that they'd they'd planned. And they watched the rest of these guys look look stunned and look towards each other, and gradually some of them started to walk back towards the camp, and the rest of them just followed suit. And that, you see, is human nature of the majority of the public. They will not take the chance. Even if they're walking into certain destruction, and they will get punished anyway for two of them escaping, no doubt. Or punished for letting it happen because it didn't stop them. <laughs> in other words, you can't win, you see. But fear in itself overcame the survival instinct. Fear. Fear of being caught and punished or tortured. It's, like, it's a good disincentive from trying to break out, isn't it? Now, there's, there's many techniques of punishment, and all law works by the initial coercion. You're threatened. It can be very subtle initially, and most folk comply. Fill this in, you fill it in, and away you go. But if you don't comply, then you get the next letter, which is more nasty, and you might get a knock on the door, in fact. So remember that, that law runs on what's something called force. And police are force as well, don't forget it. These are called police services, but now they're called police forces. And it's been drummed in here through all the, all the movies you've watched, all the television shows you've watched too. And they even dress in black, which is the, the executioner's uh, uniform. And in Canada, they used to wear the blue shirts, light blue shirts, nice and uh, and tidy, and a lighter blue uniform. Not quite navy blue, but a bit lighter, but a light-coloured shirt and uh, a different cap, and they didn't have their, their their pants tucked in combat boots. There's a reason all this happened, and it happened in the 90s, 1990s, getting ready for what was to come. I did a show back then, too, because I noticed the sudden transformation of it. They, they tried, with, with a few articles in the Toronto papers, for example, of showing you public relations photographs of the new police dressed in, but they had army fatigues on at the time. 
and supposedly called out to deal with possible shots in Toronto and someone heard shots or whatever. Looked to me at the time to more publicity stunts to get you acclimatised to see them dressed in army uniforms, helmets and all. And the same green combat gear. But uh, they decided it wasn't going down too well. That this, this association with the military wasn't going down too well. They still wanted the military association, but they changed it into literally black outfits that were more akin to the old, uh, the old German special forces uniforms. And that's what they are, with a cap and a black tunic and the pants and the combat boots, etc. And, and even if everything's black, which is a, an ominous, ominous shade. It's not a colour, technically, but it's a very ominous shade. You know, It's a neutral, they call it. That's the symbology of death and the executioner, and that's why it came out then. And... This other town I was living in at the time, after the, the first escapades that they had with the military gear, they came out with this black outfit. And they would have three or four of them walking side by side, chatting and joking along the streets. And I noticed, I said, now, how come no one's looking at this? I'm, look, I'm staring at this, saying, what on earth is this? It was so different. And then I saw it in the paper, it says, residents might have noticed police walking down and wearing blah, 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 blah. They're getting the public acclimatized to their nice, new, smart uniforms. This is all before the terrorism thing happened and 9-11 happened. Not long before, but before. It was all getting ready for it. And ready for the big transformation in society where they, they maybe didn't expect some kind of problems amongst the population in society. Everything's worked out. It didn't happen by its chance. It didn't happen by itself. It didn't happen because we were just bored of seeing light blue uniforms. It was designed that way to be the same as the US, as they were going the same way. And this idea of special forces inside society. And that's how you're trained. Most folk go along with it without even giving it much thought at all. They accept anything in their surroundings. Quite, quite, quite easily. And they, they do expect, like, like many have noticed in the past, or, or stated in the past, that most folk uh, literally will not even use their own, their own minds to think about anything. They do wait until their favourite authorised newscaster comes on to tell them about it and what to think about it. And if you get an ominous feeling when you see something like that, and your newscaster says nothing about it, you'll dismiss it from your mind. It's unimportant. If it was important, the newscasters and authorities would tell you. That's how, they, that's how simple it is for most people to be conditioned into anything. And that was the same time, of course, that Alan Rock, who went off to work from the federal government into the United Nations right afterwards, he, I think he was up, up at the Attorney General's level, he had put through, supposedly single-handedly, according to newspapers at the time, an omnibus bill. It was called an omnibus crime bill. And nothing was happening, remember, in the 90s, especially in Canada. And they said that the reporters said, what is this? This is about indefinite detention without charge and blah, blah. They said, they said this, is an, this is an anti-terror bill or a, you know, a wartime bill. And that's exactly what it was. I mean, the public were never given a reason for it. But, but three years later, of course, 9-11 happens, and there you go. 
what happens to for the public's information is always way behind what's planned to happen, you see. And we are living through agendas. There's no doubt about it. None at all. From the Maurice Strong agenda, he's only one part of it, with working with the Rockefeller brothers for years, and then he brings through the the whole the whole idea of biodiversity treaty at the Rio conferences. None of the public are involved in this. It's all to do with the, the top honchos that are in with the United Nations, world governments, and so on. And Maurice Strong also, when he when he came over to Canada. They brought him back from Canada briefly when Bob Ray was in Ontario, the Premier of Ontario, and he was put in charge of Ontario hydroelectric power for the whole of Ontario. Ontario's a very big place, remember. At the same time, he was drawing a salary from the United Nations because a wee bit of a conflict, not much, mind you, because he do lots of things and no one's going to say boo to him because there's such a thing as almost a special kind of select royalty amongst them. And you can see that if you have eyes to see. But he, he closed down one of the power plants and said he wasn't going to reopen it. This is way back then. All to do with what we're seeing now, we've got to start getting the public to use less energy, less energy. This also includes water, electricity. What good's water if you need the electricity to pump it or to supply it to your homes? So it was all planned a long time ago, and the people just adapt and adapt and adapt, just like the ones getting led back from the dreary, dreary occupation, you might say, on that road, back to the Gulag. And uh, that's what the public did. They adapt and adapt. It must be okay, because after all, they mean well. You know, our, our, our managers mean well. They're there to serve us. Where do you see any instance or example of them being there to serve you? I mean, if that's the case, I want to be one of them to get a, like a servant's paycheck because I really need it badly. In other words, everything is deception, including the terminology, isn't it? It really is. But that's what you must do. And I, I, today I looked across some of the old books I've got here because certain things just stick in your mind. Sometimes whole chapters do. But I was thinking of Charles Galton Darwin and his book, The Next Million Years. And remember, Charles Galton Darwin, a descendant of Charles Darwin, he was also a, a top physicist. And he worked on the, the atomic energy program to create the atom bomb uh, and, and the Manhattan Project. He was part of, of the team for Manhattan Project. And he coordinated. It wasn't just done all, all by those in, in, in the U.S. It was done with... with uh, Scientists from Australia, Canada, Britain, and so on. But he he helped to, to actually work to design the bomb. And after that, he dedicated himself to working on eugenics, the program of eugenics, which his whole family, going way back to Charles Darwin, uh, were completely involved in, along with the, with the Huxleys. And Thomas Huxley, remember, was a great pal of Darwin, and he became Darwin's bulldog and took over the agenda for Darwinism and eugenics when Darwin died. I've mentioned so many talks before that there's no doubt about it. From the speeches that, say, the brother Julian Huxley gave, the brother of Aldous Huxley, when he was put in head of UNESCO, he talked about the different categories of helpers that manage the lives of us mere mortals down below. And he mentioned uh, the financial class way up there and those who manage the system of economics. 
And below that, they had the scientific class, including the mind people, the manage, people who manage your minds and behaviorists and, and psychologists and all very important. Uh, they, they manage the culture and keep you, you know, down there somewhere, la la land and happy. And he talked about all different kinds that are that's necessary and that existed then to manage us all, including the media and what the media's job was back then. It was rather blatant. People used to understand the, what I'm talking about now. And here I'm going off prowling about. I didn't intend to go all this way, but the fact is, when I was growing up, the older people. All distrusted the media. They knew who owned the, the, the newspapers uh, and the magnets, and and uh, they knew who they were, and they knew the organisations they belonged to. This is before computers, folks. You know, people they were not stupid, and they knew what their leanings were with, with so-called left, right, or whatever it happened to be. Uh, they were much more educated in it all back then than they are today. And they didn't trust them because they knew what power was all about. They knew what governance was all about, how they were governed by all of these special institutions that uh, Darwin and Huxley's and all the rest of them were talking about and, and were part of, in fact. You see, that the, the deep state is a modern term for what existed back then. It's always been here. And the first thing uh, that you'll find in the writings of the next million years, you'll find he he'll go into the again. Always touch on history as though it was a, a all-known fact and all the rest of it, but it's to convince you that what he's, what he's going to eventually hit you with is quite you know reasonable. So how do you get people to be reasonable about getting sterilized and you know giving up good food and stuff and going getting sick again and dying? I mean, how do you get? It's almost like salesmen. Salesmen try to get you to say yes. It's a nice day, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Beautiful sun, yeah. Look at the they're the lovely flowers, aren't they? Yeah, a nice garden. Whoa. And away they go. And, and the more times they can get you to say yes, eventually when it comes to them with the sales pitch for the items are going to sell or insurance. You don't want to say no to this nice person that you've said yes to all along. It's, it's simple stuff, but it works. It really works. We're very predictable, well studied. We're well studied, like you wouldn't believe. But you'll find, as I say, I mean, let's just get, take something to do with Charles Galton's Darwin's book. And again, you'll, you'll agree most of the stuff, because a lot of the stuff he's talking about is obvious. It's his solutions, you see. He wants your permission to go along with. But you'll, you'll find that he says, he talks about creeds. Now, a creed, he talks about all many, all how society is structured, etc. Very simple, not in any great depth. But he talks about creeds and how the the... the Things have had a, a, a long-term effect on cultures. Uh, and if you have a long term of peace, because it's a religious culture, what they call a creed, you see, which gives you your morals and a justice, well, just an extent. You all know the rules, there's less crime and so on. And you can work to, or even help each other or even feed each other, hopefully. Uh, as nature should, that's being what humans are about, is helping each other. That's how we survived even thousands of years ago before commerce came along the way it is today. But the job of creed's been awfully successful at that. And before he goes on to creeds in his book, The Next Million Years, he, he does touch on the different problems in society. But how do you get the public, how do you get the public to, to just give everything up and, and be bossed around by their betters, the scientific class, you see? 
Then he, he, he said, there's a creed may have the rudiment of the quality possessed by the genes of mankind. The creed, you saw about the, 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 the religion, you see, of being able to produce a permanent effect on humanity. If the history of the future is not regarded as the automatic unfolding of a sequence of uncontrollable events, and few of us would accept this inevitability, then anyone who has decided what measures are desirable for the permanent betterment of his fellows won't naturally have to consider what is the best method of carrying his policy through. So he's talking about ways of getting you to, to depopulate yourselves, even sterilization of the unfit, etc. That's what he calls it, the unfit, and, and even feeble, all the stuff that the, the Nazis were blamed for. And this is after Nazi Germany, by the way, because they, they brought eugenics back. And one of the biggest push-offs of that, of course, was, was cleverly put through at UNESCO by Julian Huxley. Hmm? They made it part of the progressive movement. They call it the progressive movement. So progressive eugenics, you see, by, by genetic, progressive genetic alteration. It sounds better than just eugenics that they've got a bad name, you see. But anyway, getting back to Darwin here, and, and Darwin says, well, desirable for the permanent betterment of his fellows, will naturally have to consider what is the best method of carrying his policy through. There are three levels at which he might work. The first and weakest is by direct conscious political action. Try to get politics to push it through, you see. But don't throw that out the window, right? So he calls that the weakest. It says, his policies like to die with him. And so to be ineffective, the second is the creation of a creed. Well, it's a religion, right? Since this has a prospect of lasting for quite a number of generations. So there is some prospect of really changing the world a little with it. So don't forget what he said here. He's given you, he's given you some, a lot of stuff in a little paragraph here. So the second is, is the creation of a creed. But this is a prospect of lasting for quite a number of generations. So there is some prospect of really changing the world a little with it. The third would be by directly changing man's nature, working through the laws of biological hereditary. And if this could be done for long enough, it would be really effective. But even if we knew all about this man's genes, which we certainly do not, a policy of this kind would be almost impossible to enforce, even for a short time. And since it would take many generations to carry it through, it would almost certainly be dropped long before any perceptible effects were achieved. That is why creeds, religions, eh, are so tremendously important for the future. You see, that's what your sustainability and greening and vegan and all that is all part of the, the new creed that they've created. If you've helped you figure all that out already. Huh? And a creed, uh, it says, gives the best practical hope that a policy will endure well beyond the life of its author. And so it gives the best practical hope that the man can have for really controlling his future. So he tells you, this is the 1950s, the book came out, 1952 I think it was, what his, this was, wasn't all his own stuff he was talking about, he was in think tanks galore, his, his own level, to do with this, what they called the problem of humanity that existed before the war and during the war and here they are after the war. They didn't, it never died off. The eugenic society is alive and well. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's actually been awfully successful, isn't it? Because they've convinced the West 
Never mind the fact that they're going sterile anyway. Hmm? Just like you'll find from the writings of their other compatriots of these characters, like the Darwins, like the Russells, who all knew each other and worked together in the same think tanks, etc., of how you sterilize the public, etc., and then how to, to make it um, desirable to be single, give them lots of sex, take care of any problems by the state, which use tax money to, to deal with problems. And um, it'd be awfully easy, actually, to... Well, how do you do it? You, you create promiscuity, hypersexualize them through the culture industry, etc. It was all... Des- People think things happen by themselves. The deep state is real. If the deep state wanted you all to, to, to live in an Edwardian or even Victorian fashion, you'd go right back to it very quickly. They, and they could do it too. There's nothing they can't do with you or convince you of. Because they have enough psychology and understanding of human nature and, and, the, and the techniques used to change your behavior, they could do it very quickly. That's what I'm trying to say to you. But... Most folk will never be convinced anyway, or don't care. Remember, again, most folk who don't care too belong to the same grouping, the, the bulk of the populace, who take the easiest path out of a problem. And the path is always directed for it. It's got a signpost for it. This is the easy path. They take it. Most people use this path, so they take it. It's like, it's like <laughs> when you go searching for anything on, on the internet, most people who look for this also saw, you know, or went, forget, I don't even follow that. I just, I mean, I, all this stuff's turned off in my computers. Forget it. I know what I'm looking for. You know? for where I find it will be a battle, but but have more chance of doing it that way, without being distracted into, and by the nudge units, as they call themselves, you know, behavior insights teams. So really, we truly are, we truly are living. It's not even an experiment. It's way beyond all of that. It's... It's so, it's everything. Everywhere you look, everything you listen to. It's all through your entertainment industry, all the, the, your updates, what you're supposed to think, believe, uh, be angry about, uh, be loving about, whatever it is. They, they tell you what is good behavior, and they keep changing you all the time. And folk go along with it all. That's what Winston was talking about, the Winston character in uh, 1984. At the end, Winston literally it comes to love Big Brother. He comes to love Big Brother. And with so much so, he'd have tear, genuine tears in his eyes. And when O'Brien told him, and, he, and would shock him with torture, how many fingers have got up, he'd say, if O'Brien held up what, four or whatever, or five, O'Brien would say, he'd shock him and say, I've got three up, even if he's holding five up, right? Yet the O'Brien said to it, with all the shocking as you screwed with your mind until your so your mind is frazzled and they'd rebuild your mind until uh, uh, towards the end, Winston said, I'm, I'm trying to see five. Yeah. And O'Brien said, that's not good enough. You must really believe it. And if I say I can fly, Winston, you'll believe I can fly. It wasn't good enough to say what, what he wanted you to say. You had to believe it. Understand? That's where folk are today with it all. There's many ways of torturing you. You don't have to get physical torture. Now, let's just touch on this here. But yeah, the, the, the next million years, again, I've, I've done talks before on some of these books, and you should go through them in my website and archive section. You, you'll start to learn something for those who haven't done it. 
And you'll find that there's nothing new under the sun, especially with all the agendas that are, that are right in front of your face today and being disclosed as though they're just instituting them today. They're old agendas, and never, they were planned long before you were born. And so a lot of them were planned in the last century and even before that one. <laughs> there you go. Eh? So anyway, I'll put up a link to the post-war era with, uh, with Huxley, of course. And you have to go through it and, and read about uh, the Huxleys. Very important family, of course. And you'll find that uh, continuity of eugenics in 20th century Britain by Professor Paul Windling, it's called. And so it's not conspiracy theory at all. And he talks about the life and ideas of Julian Sorrell Huxley. Uh, represented not only considerable con- contributions to evolutionary theory, but also to eugenic thought and social planning so it's not conspiracy. His career, his history was complex and disjointed, making him an international, very much a public figure. And it's, it goes into how really the Huxleys were awfully important and how they were descended from Thomas Huxley, the, the Darwin's bulldog. And you find, too, they're all intermarried. All these families are intermarried. And getting back again, before I go any further, actually, it says here, an influential analysis of human evolution and set of persuasively appealing concepts for both the wider public and scientific elite. They want you to go along with it, you see. An appealing concept. Well, it's not that bad, is it? You know, see? Getting back to Winston, huh? I really want to see it, you know, what you're, what you're telling me are up there, how many fingers are up there. And I really want to see it, you see? And so you must be broken and come with, them with, with perfect servitude. As, as Aldous Huxley mentioned, how the public will come along to this new agenda, which they're floating right through right now, with perfect, into perfect servitude. They'll come to love their servitude. It's all the same agenda. It's almost like coding of, of the language, just slightly different here and there. The, the insiders all know what it means. They know who's talking in the same language. You see? But anyway, a full-scale critical biography of Huxley is alluded to historians because of the sheer complexity of his activities. Historians of the life sciences have recognized the theoretically originality of his scientific contributions and his role in developing what he called in 1942 the evolutionary synthesis, his popularizing of natural history and ornithology in a new guise of ethology showed his visionary ability to define a field of research. His central commitment to reform eugenics linked to social plannings has been elucidated for the pre-Second World War period, while Huxley's role in co-authoring the anti-Nazi We Europeans, because he was, a, he was an author in this one, has been duly uh, recognized. Huxley's overlooked support for refugee scientists from National Socialism, not least at London Zoo from 1935 to 40, to be linked to his evolutionary agendas. A number of his historical initiatives opened the way for reconsidering Huxley. These include interest in the early years of UNESCO and the UNESCO Declaration on Race, elucidation of how Cold War culture was shaped by intelligence agencies, and historical reconstruction of the place of eugenics in international population policies and practices. This is not a conspiracy theory. And it goes on and on and on, but that's only one of many, actually. And most folk don't care, as I say. Most folk are still in that, the workers' group going back to the camp, and there's no guards left. They're invisible guards, like we have today, but it's invisible until, until you get a little email, you know, or something like that, or a knock on the door. See what I'm saying?
It's all here, folks. I also want to do this one too. Why the post-natural age could be strange and beautiful. Hmm? Isn't that wonderful? Post-natural age, as you get conditioned, eh? And it says there's an institution, an unusual institution, the Center for Post-Natural History, small museum with an electric and bizarre mix of specimens. And they'll tell you there's a ribless mouse embryo, sterile male screwworm, sample of E. coli, and specimen designed to be harmless and able to survive outside the laboratory, and a stuffed transgenic biosteel goat named Freckles, genetically modified to produce spider silk proteins in her milk. These are some of the things on show there. But it's getting used to the post-naturalists and post-natural, post-natural humans, you see. And that's what you're going through, the, the big changes. They all work together, though. They all work together. And hopefully you, you won't breed at all, and then your population will really plummet very quickly. That's what they also want. But not too fast at once, you see. Not too fast. They actually have ideal uh, rates of it, of, of the decline. But they also go through different little documentaries that are, that are out there. You probably see them at this museum where they, they show you that we may even become... I mean, don't forget that, that Julian Huxley coined the term transhuman, right? He comes from a transhumanist all that time ago in the 1920s and 30s and 40s and 50s. And this article here goes into, again, the transhuman thing, where you, you may even get animal genes put into you down the road to, to, to animals going extinct, and you could carry their genes down through generations, maybe come bring them back in the future from your own genes. This is how they're getting you used to this, this complete change. Change is a key, the word change, plan change. Hmm? And allowing yourself to be changed. Hmm? For the good of all, you see, it's a crisis, don't you know? So I'll put this article up too. And then, again, what was the agenda before World War I and before World War II? Depopulate too many of their own people. Too many of their own people. Well, now we've got crisis and climate change and, oh, there's just not enough energy to blah, 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 blah. So, you know, same agenda. But now it's under necessity to save us all. They must bring down the population to save us all. And obviously more on right off the bat, but that won't compute with most folk. Plant-based meat startup beyond meat prices at $25 a share ahead of IPO. And it tells you, plant-based meat startup Bill Gates backed, it's called Beyond Meat, priced at the top end of its IPO range at $25 a share ahead of its debut on the NASDAQ on Thursday. Lifting California-based company's potential market value to almost $1.5 billion. So the same monopolists that run inf- in, you know, information and computers and so on, right? are into all other things too. Now they're going for your food supply. And you've already had it where the big, big companies own seeds. You can't even save seeds now to put the killer gene in them. So the Terminator genes, so you have to go back every year and buy seed from them if you want to grow stuff as a farmer. Are you beginning to get it? What monopoly is all about, folks? Power eh? and control. So I'll put this one up. Then lab-grown meat. Here's another one. Coming to supermarket shelves soon. Our governments are, are funding these, these, and they're paying in losses. They'll say they've got to the big, big supermarkets. Eh? They're paying them to, to grow. So startup makes lab-grown meat from animal cells. Silicon Valley startup Memphis Meats says they've successfully made the world's first lab-grown chicken strips as well as duck and beef using animal cells. 
So this is this is this is a different one again. They've actually done an artificial stuff that they tried creating in laboratories. I think it was in Holland initially. I think there's quite a few countries involved in making this 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 particular artificial meat. And quite a few countries involved. The Holland was one. The U.S. is one. Israel's another one. I don't know if Britain is is doing it yet, but so many countries will be involved in all of this stuff. But they want they want us all to eat, especially substitutes, meat substitutes. But they've, now they've got artificial meat as well because they don't want you having beef around. You know. People are living too long. They claim. Hmm? He's one here too. No more bacon sarnies. Ed Miliband, the Briton, right? Ed Miliband, the politician, actually, who comes from a, a family of some say communists, but definitely socialists. And his brother, who another politician, went off from Britain, and and he's now the. Uh, you know, he's put in charge at the time. He's still with him a, a big, big charity for the, for the philanthropic salary of half a million a year. I think it was. They're they're awfully well paid. These particular socialists. But uh, it says Ed Miliband says we'll have to eat less meat. This is the one who's still in Britain, and backs more taxes naturally on holiday flights to tackle climate change. In a fiery BBC interview with John Humphreys. There you go. So I'm sure he'll do without, right? Huh? Hmm. And uh, so he says, uh, he's a former energy and climate change minister. What a title to have, energy and climate change minister. He's in charge of the climate, right? or he's what he was. Hmm? He used to have these titles for the gods of Egypt. They had gods for all things, including the climate, you know, and sun and air and, yeah, rain too. Hmm? We just elect them, or you think you do. So there you go. And it all comes out with taxes too, which also impoverish you until, you know, they're getting the message, less energy, less energy. So technically money is a form of energy. There's an organization out in the 30s came out with that and they, they actually planned it that way. Energy units and some of the top bankers today still talk about it. White Castle debuts plant-based sliders that bleed. It looks like meat and even tastes like it, but it's not made from cows. Isn't that statement right out of Orwell's 1984 when they're in a canteen? And Orwell's neighbor, who works there too, the same place, says this kind of white mush that they're eating. Isn't that amazing? It says, looks like meat, tastes like meat, but there's no meat in it at all. And here you're reading it from articles they're putting out. Looks like meat, it says, and even tastes like it, but it's not made from cows. Impossible Foods, I guess the company CEO Patrick Brown explains the process behind creating the company's plant-based protein and how hamburger restaurants around the country are taking bites out of it. So there you go. It's, it's like the old soya stuff from the, the 60s and 70s, that, that quivering jelly stuff they used to see. I've got a few articles, and I'll put all these links up anyway for people who are interested in, in catching up on it. But anyway... As I say, they want to they want to bring down you know the population to to, to eat less meat to tackle climate change. You know the, the big the big crisis. You see, and it's a wartime crisis. You're you're the enemy to the planet is mankind. You see, so they've got to deal with that problem, and you must go along with it. But they want your consent to go along with it. And at the same time, all this is happening, right? You've got euthanasia, big time euthanasia. I can remember. I think it was the night of 2001 on the, on a show of of the of the 11th, of course, 9/11/2001, saying the hardest thing because I knew that whole agenda would be unleashed with this whole agenda because the two Bushes by that time had given us the big talks on 
on a, a new world order. And and if you're in the know and you're straight enough from the, the same sources at the top, you know what they were talking about. It's unleashing of a whole new agenda, very uh, to the public anyway, but an old agenda to them for this order of living, uh, depopulation, a, a world system all run by the same group at the top. And uh, again, you have a whole agenda 21 to work through for the 21st century, where all of this must be accomplished step by step by step, out of the cars, a temporary solution given you, so you won't complain too much, which won't be around for too long, getting you off of meat, getting you used to the fact you can't afford the energy anymore, for, for especially electricity and so on, things that have made it more comfortable and more sanitary, and keeping disease down and all the rest of it, all the things you need are gradually be taken down from most of the public. Easy to do when you when you mandate it this way, and then you tax penalties for the, so only those at the very top and wealthy people can afford to live like they had lived before. Quite simple, isn't it? But you also get the next part of it too, that even Obama prattled on about, more openly about his grandmother being sick, etc. And why openly talk about that in a public speech? Well, he's talking about euthanasia. Because the old agenda, which again goes way back, way back, and again came out in the 1930s with Brave New World, where you'd live a healthy life until a certain age, and then you'd, you'd go get sick, and then you'd die. And they would teach the children to celebrate death. And the bodies go back into the earth, like they're doing now again, like the articles last week with the green goo. They turn you green goo, and they can, and they can pour you into the roots of a tree. Oh, you starting to get it, are you? It's a very old agenda. But you see, you must get the public to go along with it. And, and as, as Huxley, Aldous Huxley said, you know, they'll come to love their servitude. He was warning you too. He says perhaps they can public with techniques. He's talking about psychology and behaviorism and all these techniques of manipulating your, your mindset and your, and your beliefs and or whatever. He said perhaps they, they, they can convince the public to accept things that they that Possibly they should not accept for their own good. That was on the, a television show. Mike Wallace, they said that. He gave you little warnings. Unlike his brother who just di- dictated to you. His brother, by the way, Julian Huxley, had to go and get uh, electroshock therapy and various other things. He was, a ma- he was manic. And he'd go into depressive phases too. He called bipolar today. It ran in their family through certain inbreeding too. Tendencies, depression, and going way back actually. It runs their family. And don't forget, uh, these families are all intermarried. The Darwins, the Huxleys, and the Darwins were interbred with uh, the Wedgwood family for, for generations. The two families interbred completely. So they're all in, already into the specialized breeding programs for those who don't, haven't figured anything out yet. <laughs> and I'm not, this is a conspiracy. This is, this is historical fact. So let's go into the next part too. And it talks about... More than a quarter of the deaths in Holland are induced, meaning euthanasia. A quarter of them now. I followed that and give talks, give, given talks over many years on Holland, because Holland, by its own admission and its own studies of the population, are the most passive, compliant population in Europe. They, they're the least ones, uh, least people in Europe to, to 
demand anything from their government or, or go against their government policies. They're very compliant. That's why they picked Holland to start it with years ago. So more than a quarter of the deaths in Holland are induced, right? It's on the rise. Fifteen years after the Netherlands decriminalized euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide, more than 25% of all deaths in the nation are induced, rather than by illness or other natural causes. You understand that rather than by, they're dying, rather, rather, (laughs) it's more than 25% are induced rather than illness or other natural causes of death. The figures based on stats from 2017 includes almost 6,600 cases of euthanasia, 1,900 suicides, and some 32,000 people killed through a practice called palliative sedation, according to an article in The Guardian. And it's got the link on that article too. I'll put these links up tonight for those who want. And the article, journalist Christopher de Belague traces the history of euthanasia in the Netherlands from when it was introduced for extreme cases. They always start off with extreme cases, unbearable suffering with no prospect of improvement, to the point where some are advocating for a legal pill that practically anyone can take in case they're tired of living. They're already giving it to ones who are just depressed, you see. So they want to get rid of the gene pools of those who have any of these problems happening to Now, how many youngsters go through depression bouts? I mean... Everybody does at some point or another, I think. As you're finding out who you are, what your what life's about, and you're not even sure yet. And a lot of folk when they're adults don't know what life's all about yet because it's so deceptive. But uh, that's that's Holland. Now Canada, again, and many other countries have followed suit with this. Here's an article here to do with that too. That's quite quite amazing, really. This is from LifeSite News. Euthanasia doctor hired for prime role at Ottawa Catholic Palliative Care Hospital. So the the Catholic Palliative Care Hospital hired a euthanasia doctor. It's a doctor who performs assisted deaths, like they call it, and lobbied for legal euthanasia in Canada, now has a pivotal role at a Catholic hospital in Ottawa, renowned for its palliative care. Dr. James Downar was hired in October as head of palliative care at the University of Ottawa, a tripartite position in which he splits his clinic time between the intensive care unit at Ottawa General Hospital and the palliative care ward at the Catholic Elizabeth uh, Bruyere Hospital. He's also a researcher with the Bruyere Research Institute. And uh, before that, Dr. Jose Pereira, such opponent of euthanasia, formerly held the position. News of Downer's appointment comes as LifeSite News learned that Canada's Catholic Health sponsors approved secret national guidelines in consultation with the bishops to allow third-party euthanasia assessments from medically frail patients on site at Catholic healthcare facilities, including Bruyere. Catholic moral theologian Dr. E. Christian Brugger says allowing such assessments at Catholic institutions is morally wrong cooperation because it's a scandalous and gross affair to bear witness to the gospel. Well, they better make their minds up whether they're serving. Eh? They've already had complaints from social media about it and people who are really ticked off at it. But it says Downer's euthanasia advocacy is a matter of public record. It says, as a former chair and member of the Physician Advisory Committee for Dying with Dignity Canada, he lobbied for the legalization of euthanasia in Canada. He performs assisted deaths, supports the harvesting of organs of euthanized individuals. Interesting, too. He's, he's, he's in the organization, too, to harvest organs. Yeah. Was a paid consultant on the Canadian Medical Association course. They call it MAID, Medical Assistance in Dying. They call it maid, of course, because it's your maid. You call for a maid when you need help, right? So, you, so you, maid is just to kill you. 
unpleasant in a way, isn't it? Anyway, and advocates that euthanasia be part of palliative care. Eventually, you see, palliative care will simply be a euthanasia, you see. Instead of taking care as best as you can until a person dies naturally, they're going to simply bump you off quickly. They want palliative care to become medical-assisted death, you see. They already offer you a quick exit in the Canadian hospitals. And I've already done stories on that, where they're offering it to young people who who are not dying, (laughs) but they're actually offering it to some people. And it's a downhill thing from here, because believing me, these characters are out in society, and they're not giving this because they, they, they believe it's helping society. You've got to understand the types of characters who run in positions of, and who are appointed to positions of authority over the general population. You got to see, there are plenty of psychopaths all through society, plenty of them, all of them, you know, all through society, I should say. You'll find them in surgery at times, in surgeons, and, and things like that. If you were to hear what they talk about, it might shock you. But your government's promoting this, remember. So this one goes on and on and on. And it says, Ottawa's Archbishop Terence Prendergast told the Catholic Registry he believes that Downer's appointment will not threaten Breuer's Catholic character. The hospital's Catholic character. Well, I think it would, wouldn't you? Uh, anyway... He's a paid consultant to Jules, Inc., incorporated for CMA course on MAID. That's a, that's a dying course. Member and former chair of Physician Advisory Committee for Dying with Dignity Canada. And also Big Pharma, Boringer, Engelheim, Canada, Medtronics, and Novartis is Big Pharma. So that's what this guy's a member of. And probably other organizations, no doubt, too, all of the... Uh, these kind of guys are. So there you go. It's it's all in your face. There's nothing to guess at. Plus, he promotes harvesting organs. I, I, tell, I keep telling folks, we are a business. We're a good business, aren't we? And most folk don't even know they're a business. They, even when they ha- they're dead, they don't know they're a business. We're, we are the business on the planet. We We provide the tax money for everything, don't we? We provide the kind of money that gives a lot of characters big, massive salaries. And we we pay for and we create organisations that allow sometimes these characters to rule over us and do what they want to do and bring in the big agenda. But I'll put this one up for anybody who cares about it. It even has lists of hospitals in the US, Canada that uh, or in the US for sure that tell you where you can go and get this done. <laughs> yeah. So it's quite something we live in. Again, eugenics, getting back to it. Don't forget what I started to talk with. <laughs> it's quite important, isn't it, to realize what you're living through. Yeah. And we are. We're living through it. It's all the same agenda, euthanasia, isn't it? Hmm? Linked in completely, absolutely linked in. It's euthanasia with population control, eugenics, economic System, because you see, we've not to be a burden on society. If we're paying money into the system, according to the United Nations, a good global citizen is a good producer and consumer. That's how they define it, from their own writings and charters. So obviously, if if you're not producing anymore, you're consuming, then you're just a burden on society. Well, here's a pill. It's only twenty-five cents for goodness' sake, and that will save uh, the system a lot of the money that you paid into it. They can use that for other things. And they can maybe harvest your organs in the process and make a little bit of money on the side, eh? We're awfully good, aren't we? We really are good, you know? 
I wonder if they'll give us little incentives down the road with uh, the articles last week where they're going to turn us into green goo rather than cremators and uh, pour us into, into Mother Earth here to, to grow plants and stuff. If we, if we put, can, we'll get some money before we're dead, maybe. We could put our names forward and then they can say, okay, if my, if my, if, if I can, you turn me into green goo, you feed the, feed the trees and the plants and that, can I get some cash before I die? Eh? But they, but or they, 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 they really going to push this for the goodwill of us to give it all for nothing, because we, we give everything else for nothing, don't we? Hmm? It's strange with all the folk you make money off the nothings that you leave behind, like organs and stuff like that. It's just astonishing that that they they live an awfully good lifestyle hmm? out of all these nothings that happen to be you. <laughs> and now we're overseers too, as was pre-designed, of course. Uh, Macron and uh, Zuckerberg meet in France uh, and talk about uh, Facebook, meaning the other ones too. Uh, the whole system is meant to tackle hate speech, meaning anything that, that's politically incorrect is going to be called hate naturally. Uh, days after the co-founder says the social media giant should be broken up. You see? And again, all these big institutions that, that you think, oh, this suddenly appeared out of nothing by just, just geniuses attached out. Well, good luck in uh, understanding anything at all. You believe that? It's all part of a system. And then uh, another article too. How the trade war with China could hit you because I think it's going to cost you up to 25%. Taxes on things coming in from China. It's great now that you can't make anything here, eh? But uh, they're giving a list of things that are going to be taxed. to start a list, right? And of course, all the all the all the ones uh, the, the wholesalers have already said they'll pass the taxes on to the consumer. That's all of you. So you paid for all your factories and that, and all these uh, companies that actually made real tangible goods. You paid for all to go to China through deals made by your politicians that you're not invited in on. You had to pay for all, and now you've got to pay taxes on all the imports uh, from China because uh, they're pretending they've got a tiff going with China. And once taxes are in, of course, they always last, because eh? they, they always use the like, temporary war tax, which is now your income tax, isn't it? Temporary war tax, victory tax and all that. And again, with Brave New World, you had SOMA, and I've mentioned about the legalization of different drugs. Eh? And you've got, uh, you've got the legalization now of even in some of the states in the U.S., uh, you've got, uh, I think it's Denver, actually, becomes the first city to decriminalize magic mushrooms. So they're going to, magic mushrooms are going to be okay. When they say it's going to be okay, folk always harvested their own. Now, of course, you'll have professional corporations uh, that'll be in charge of um, growing it all and make money off it because there's always big corporations take everything over, if not even start it and launch it in the first place. And it's only a start because they have to go on and on with other drugs too. That's what some of the top honchos have said. Because uh, it's now so much time. Now, much of your meaning of life seems crazy. The pace of life uh, is, is getting crazy. The reasons for being around seem crazy, hence your euthanasia, etc. I'm not you know, kidding you. It's all tied in. It's all worked out this way. And so I'll put these articles up anyway on the, the drugs. And how they're pushing, how they're pushing through again the, the so called the, the top media. You're not allowed to say certain words now, but the top media authorized uh, are pushing it all. Because their job is to push a lot of things that confuse you. But you've got, you've got is microdosing LSD a solution to the crisis of meaning in modern life? It's, oh, there you go, see? 
So let's bring LSD in microdoses, eh? No visions, no wavering lights, no breathing wood. It's less about being at one with all forms of life. Being at one with them, and more just about getting through the day. So it's good for you. It's, it's therapeutic now, right? Rather than just jump out the window and things like that. And I knew folk who did that. It's going to help you. So you understand how they can make you believe anything. Huh? One of the largest formal studies of its kind, the participants, 909 of them recruited online from 29 countries, included teachers and people who worked in advertising and ranged in age from the late teens to the late 70s by gathering responses to an online questionnaire and challenging them to a task to, to measure their creativity. Two University of Toronto PhD students completed one of the first psychological profiles of the growing microdosing community. Hmm? It's a regular consumption of small, non-trippy amounts of psychedelic substances such as LSD and magic mushrooms. Isn't that amazing? All these articles all flooding you at the same time from different, what you seems to be different sources. Hmm? The study found the microdoses scored lower overall on neuroticism and dysfunctional attitudes, meaning you're very, you're not going to be, you're going to be more pleasant. You know, can we tax you more? Ah, oh, no problem, man. Sure, okay, go ahead. Hmm? So you'll be, you'll be more pleasant and stuff, and less neurotic. You won't say, you, well, you, you can't tax me anymore, I'm starving as it is, for God's sake. You know, no, you can't say that. You just hear one of the old trip of LSD, you'll say, oh, sure, man, yeah, cool, man, yeah, yeah. good cause, yeah, sure. And then yeah, higher on a brief uh, wisdom scale, you're more wise. How would they have pushed that, that rubbish forever? <laughs> You've ever seen the rubbish that folk write after they've been tripping out, or even smoking dope, eh? At a time, it's the great philosophy and great poetry, and they read it next day. And of course, they, they, they you know they, they, they try to burn it before anybody sees them. You know, read it rubbish. Hmm? But here they're telling the same old con game here, and higher on brief wisdom scale that measures beliefs like "I'm in touch with my feelings" or "I have a good sense of humor about myself." They seemed more open-minded, more curious, and more creative, coming up with more unique and unusual uses for a brick and a knife. Huh? In other words, their mental health seemed to be flourishing. I guess that's well-being, eh? I guess. Hmm? Not wonderful. It's, in other words, you're, you're, the system, the big system will like you more when you're, you're just way out, man. Sure. Hmm. Laid back, yeah. It says they compared microdosers, current and former, against controls. No microdosing experience. Their study lacked a placebo arm, making it hard to prove cause and effect. This isn't the tune-in, drop-out counterculture of the 60s. No, no, no. It's, it's to be pleasant. You see, you can be awfully pleasant, everything that you're told. You know, can we take your shoes? We need them. Oh, no problem, man. <laughs> sure. So anyway, it says, the University of Toronto Centre for Psychedelic Studies. Like, they haven't done enough of them, eh? And no doubt we get a little grant for this too. So now the judo and the newly launched University of Toronto Centre for Psychedelic Studies are preparing what could be the first Canadian study of its kind, a new randomised trial that will compare placebos to measured doses of psilocybin, that's, that's a mushroom, and principal uh, psychoactive compound found in certain types of fresh and dried mushrooms. Can you believe we're wasting our money at this again? But again, this agenda, you've got to get drugged, folks, because society is getting so crazy. And you know what it is? Is it take all your beliefs from you. When you see things that just don't make sense, you actually physically see things. And you're told to believe other things, and then you you, you can't. Well, you, you got to get drugged, so you you start to see lots of weird things. I'm telling, like jolly green giants. I, there was a guy who did that. He stripped out on a hillside. He he literally claimed there was a guy hundreds of feet tall, complete green, went hopping along over the hills and over him. Yeah, no kidding you. Yeah, 
So you're going to feel laid back, for goodness sake, and yeah. It'll also do away with some of these drugs. Some of these drugs do away with, with appetite, whereas dope, of course, tends to make folk eat more. And I don't want, even the Guardian's on the I mean, on these papers, it's a coincidence. Makes me enjoy playing with the kids. It's microdosing mushrooms going mainstream. Huh? It says, it says, increasing numbers are taking tiny doses of psychedelic drugs in the UK. Why? Suddenly, a sudden phenomenon all over the place at the same time. Wow, isn't that amazing, folks? Eh? Inside is a grey powder and her finely ground, home-ground magic mushrooms. There you go. Just very small doses every three or four days. Do you understand what's going on, folks? Huh? Hmm? Do you? The things you're, you've already been taught to accept are getting more bizarre. The things that they want you to accept and how to comply with things is, is, is you go into poverty, fuel poverty, energy poverty, and all the rest of it are going to get more bizarre. But it's much easier when you're pleasant and compliant, isn't it? Yeah, man, no problem. Yeah, peace. Yeah. yeah, and I feel alive. University lecturer 40 who microdosed tiny amounts of psychedelic mushrooms says drugs encouraged her to split with her husband. Wow, I wonder if she's on Oprah yet. Yeah. She's a university lecturer from East London. Said it freed her. Yeah, drugs can free you. Yeah, certainly can. Wow, wow, I'm telling you. And then you went into, of course, the other side of things like Shanghai, where, where actually the, the, the addiction to things are so bad now with drugs. They're, they're doing brain surgery on people now and even putting electrodes in. The, the old Tavistog idea of electrodes right into the skull. And you can, and you can actually uh, work them with, with, with your computer or, t- or a tablet, probably with, with your cell phone too. Yep, so that's how you deal with the madness in society that's been forced upon people. And you'll get through it all, you see. You won't notice a thing. You'll just, in fact, you literally probably won't notice a thing. Anything. And the mums who took cocaine during play dates, isn't it? All these happy stories suddenly came out. They ain't all came out by themselves, eh? Cocaine use in England and Wales is at a 10-year high, with middle-class users accused of fueling the drugs trade. This is a Victoria Derbyshire program met two mothers who described how their addiction affected their lives. They'd be unmarried, they're single mums. And they'd have their babies in the carrier and then they'd go up and take, do a line here with their pals and stuff and sit and chat. And then when they're pregnant, they also kept doing it and yada, 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 you know. Mm-hmm. One of the country's leading providers of private addiction treatment says it's seen a 28% increase in the number of cocaine addicts since 2015. Drugs are great for you, Wow. And here they are pushing more and telling you that at the same time, at the same time what happens, eh? Quite amazing. And again, getting back to, you know, euthanasia. All these people who want to help you, you know, reduce the population and get organs at the same time. Organ donation is a selfless gift to those on transplant wait lists. But what if we euthanize patients by harvesting their organs? So they kill you when they harvest the organs. How's that? Because then they're really fresh, eh? Telling you. There you are. But it's such a, a, a nice article, it's just wonderful. It's just, you, you, you'll actually want to go and do it after you read this article. If you take some of the drugs, in fact, you might, you might definitely volunteer for it. No problem, man, yeah, yeah. So, getting back to what I, I said at the beginning, what I said was Charles Galton Darwin, descendant of Charles Darwin, and a physicist who had no problem working on something that would kill millions of people, the atomic bomb, 
he wasn't satisfied with that. He wanted to kill an awful lot more people and euthanize the rest, or else sterilize them. At least he mentions that in his book, The Next Million Years. If he could just convince folk to be sterilized, for goodness sake, you know, all the wrong people, you know, get them to go along with see, see their point of view. Again, you know, look, like, like Aldous Huxley said, you know, the, the people could, could be coerced into coming and agreeing to all these things and be quite willing to, to be servants, basically, of the world state. You'd be happy with your servitude, you see. There's nothing that can't be done to you. And again, Huxley talked about different drugs that could be used, and so did Charles Galton Darwin, and here you go, folks. Here you go. And then the enemies of their agenda, the enemies being too much good energy for giving you sanitary conditions and heat and warmth in the winter and things like that. You start doing away with all of that, make it unaffordable by most. You'll get diseases creeping in and, and water will get contaminated again. And well, Russell, Burton Russell said if they only had a black plague every generation or two, it would help keep the population down. Hmm. Now, I'm not making this stuff up, folks. This is not conspiracy stuff. It's in your face. And again, I can't make, I said this in my early talks too, I said you can't force people to, to, to do anything about anything. You could actually do it if you had the money, lots of money, and you use the techniques of persuasiveness, to, and, and especially get the young kids, brainwash them quickly, and make them hate whoever you want them to hate, and they become a great army. The creed, the very creed that Charles Galton Darwin said would be very effective. It's a creed, it's a belief, it's a religion. They're fanatics. These young, they're absolutely fantastic. They're like any fanatical type religion. And they'll do what they're told, ruthlessly. It's all there. It doesn't happen by itself. And what the deep state doesn't want doesn't exist. So I'm sorry for prattling on so much in this talk here, but as I say, I wasn't prepared for it really. I was going to mention Charles Galton Darwin, leave it at that, and go into two or three things, but you can always tie things and. You won't get articles in the newspapers or on television or whatever coming out. All the same articles at the same time, promoting the same things. When we've, we've lived through years and years of drug problems everywhere, and suddenly they're promoting it all. Wake up, folks. Eh? You know, wake up, or as you used to say, drop out. Hmm? Well, that's it from me tonight, Alan Watchman, here in Canada. It's good night. May your God or your God's go with you.